Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week, the Right Reverend Graham James, a former Bishop of Norwich, reflects on the faith of Prince Philip. Bishop James preached numerous times at Sandringham and was quizzed by the Duke of Edinburgh about the content of his sermons as well as wider theological matters. His was a questioning, searching faith, Bishop James says. There's a sense in which his own restlessness was also applied to his religion. But that, I think, was why it meant a lot to him. He didn't want a routine religion. He wanted one which challenged his mind as well as his spirit. Bishop James writes about Prince Philip in this week's Church Times, which also includes coverage of church leaders' tributes, funeral plans, an obituary and more. And there's more to read at churchtimes.co.uk. Bishop Graham, you've written in this week's Church Times about Prince Philip's Christian faith, and many are aware of of the Queen's deep faith, but do you think Prince Philip's own faith has passed under the radar somewhat? Um, Yes, I think it has, and surprisingly so, given that he uh, wrote two books with Michael Mann on matters theological, and that seems to have been almost entirely forgotten. There was... Um, the Windsor Correspondence, which was his letters to Michael Mann and exchanges about the questions of the existence of God in the age of space exploration, the possibility of extraterrestrial life, what impact that might make on our understanding of God. And then I suppose even more forgotten is a smaller book called Survival or Extinction, um, which was a Christian response to environmental issues. I mean, very early on, really, because we're going back, what, 30, 35 years. Um, so it's it's a long time ago. Um, and, and one of the important things I think about that was that it was a move away from exploitation of the earth to responsibility to sustain its well-being. I mean, his understanding of conservation is well known. Uh, I think now that would seem very dated, but it was pretty up to date for its own time and spoke of the way in which his um, faith, which was a questioning one, he was always searching, um, was one which wasn't confined to the life of the church or to worship or formal prayer, but was one which encompassed, from his point of view, the whole of creation. So I think it is a mistake to set aside um, Prince Philip's Christian faith. It was a questioning, searching one. Um, And I suppose it was in contrast to the Queen's um, much more accepting style of faith. I mean, there's a a sense in which his own restlessness, which was obvious throughout the whole of his life, was also applied um, to his religion. Um, But that that I think was why it meant a lot to him. You know, he didn't he didn't want a routine religion. He wanted one which challenged his mind as well as his spirit. Oh, I mean, as the um, United Reformed Church said in, in tribute to him, they said his faith was much more than nominal. So, sounds like you'd agree with that assessment. Yeah, I think that that's undoubtedly true. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, how do how does how do any of us assess the faith of someone else? But I'm doing it simply on the basis of what he wrote, what he said what he put in the public domain and the way of which, of course, he engaged with every preacher he came across just about, you know, if you had something (laughs) worth saying. (laughs) Indeed. Well, I mean, that that leads on to your 
your visits to Sandringham to preach and, and I suppose to dine with the royal family. Um, I mean, can you tell us a bit about what those experiences were like when, when you were Bishop of Norwich? Well, it became a regular part of one's routine. Um, you go immediately after Christmas for the weekend um, on the Saturday, returning on the Monday. So I did work out that I'd spent just over seven weeks living at Sandringham um, by the time I'd retired. Uh, so you get used you get used to it, except you never quite get used to the demands of preaching a, a, a brief sermon because... Um, yeah, I mean, Rowan Williams was right in saying that they needed to be brief, um, probably eight minutes at the outside, but also saying something substantial. And as you know, um, brevity demands greater preparation than prolixity. Uh, and so you, you frequently, but not always, got a bit of a tutorial afterwards. Um, although one of the things that he enjoyed was humour in sermons that had a point and and you never quite knew what he might pick up on. It might be a reference that you made or it might be something um, theological. I mean, I think I put in my article in the Church Times, I, I'll never forget, it was an early sermon where I happened to mention in passing, really, that Marx was the very first um, gospel to be written. I mean, that, I wasn't making a particular point about it. And that's what he picked up on afterwards, you know, all that. How do you or anyone else know that? And why does Matthew come first if that's the case? You know, I doesn't think why, why don't things get rearranged? You know, and and it led to a, a very interesting exchange where you were put on the spot, really. I mean, I was saying that of course it wasn't true early on that Mark was thought to be original. And if you look in the Book of Common Prayer, there's hardly any um, uh, gospel readings from Mark at all in the common book of common prayer um, lectionary and that's because of course he doesn't really have much that's distinctive that doesn't belong anywhere else which is one of the evidences that Matthew and Luke used him and so on so we ended up having quite a good talk about how the New Testament then came to be um, which is why I think I also said in my article it's a very old book now produced by the Bible Reading Fellowship but I still think it's 60 pages of um, very wise reflection, Anthony Harvey's little book, Something Overheard, which is an introduction to the New Testament and in a way an introduction to biblical criticism in a in a positive way. And so I don't quite know whether he read it, but he was a voracious reader. I mean, there was one occasion I arrived at Sandringham and he said, what do you know about General Monk? And it was fortunate I did history for my degree and specialised mm -hmm. the English Civil War and thereafter. And I said, well, the only general monk I know is the one who invited Charles II back to England. And he went, oh, yeah, we do. you do know about him. And, and you were tested all the time. It, things came from left field um, very frequently. Um, but, and of course, if you um, responded to him as he um, tested you, then he rather enjoyed it. Um, what he didn't like was not getting a response. What he, what he yearned was a response and then a discussion. And one of our last conversations on my last visit was about um, his fascination with Mount Athos. I mean, I don't think there was much of the Greek Orthodox Christian left in the Duke of Edinburgh, if I'm honest, um, although we could talk about his sort of sacramental understanding of creation. Um, but he was fascinated by, um, by the revival of Mount Athos, which he thought was a sort of sign of fleeing modern life, you know, and uh, um, you know, admirable at one level, 
puzzling at another that so many people from the West had gone there. So you never knew quite what you would talk with him about, but his knowledge was um, remarkably broad, as you might expect from somebody who travelled the world and, of course, had been in so many different situations. You know, you pick up bits of knowledge. I mean, that's also true for bishops. You move around so much that you pick up bits of knowledge and you think that you know a little bit about lots of things and perhaps nothing very much at depth about anything. Is it right in thinking he was, he was baptised into the Greek Orthodox Church as a, as a baby, but then was um, received in or confirmed in, in the Church of England before he was married? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, to be truthful, I don't... I mean, he must have been confirmed, I assume. Um, he certainly was received into the church ring before he was married and i assume um that he was confirmed at that time but i don't actually know you've asked me a question i don't know the answer to um but of course he he then became i think somewhat a bit like the queen really who is more at home i think at morning prayer than uh, at holy communion yet that was an absolutely important part of the life that she has lived um you know, it's striking that what I think the public doesn't necessarily know, it's no particular secret, is that on Christmas Day, for example, they'll have a service of Holy Communion at nine o'clock, but they'll go to matins in the church at 11. So um, there's, a, there's a sense in which the public church going tends to be um, non-sacramental, um, yet at the same time, the sacraments are, are, are very important. I think he... He was more at home in that sort of, um, well, it, it, the sort of traditional Church of England environment, which he would have known when he was a young man, which in a way has disappeared. You know, sometimes when I went to Sandringham and we had sung matins, I thought there aren't very many churches in the Diocese of Norwich that have still got this as the main service on a Sunday morning. So there was a sense in which what um, the royal family experienced as normal Church of England was very normal in the 1950s, is less so now. And I think, of course, he, the nature of his faith was that I think he preferred sermons to sacraments, if I'm, you know, to put it that way, because he liked to engage his mind with his faith. And at that level, I think his faith was, was surprisingly cerebral. Though, as I say, in what I've written about him, that um, the sacramental understanding of creation, which is there in Orthodoxy and Catholicism, was part of his life as well. He, uh, his, his, his faith wasn't entirely cerebral. And just thinking about his, I guess, how he um, brought his faith into the, you know, into into his daily life and in, into the public square. I mean, Lord Harry's um, in, in tributes in the House of Lords on Monday um, spoke of Prince Philip's. Um, significant interfaith work. Um, do you think that's a significant legacy? Yes. Um, well, I think one of the one of the significant things he did really, which which has lasted, I mean, many of the um, many of the organizations that he was part of setting up do seem to have lasted and didn't depend entirely on him. I mean, that's a you know, not just the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, but also um, St George's House at Windsor, which I think was was probably Robin Woods's idea, but in a sense, Robin Woods, then the Dean of Windsor and the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, are classed as joint founders. And of course, it was a place to bring together uh, leaders in science and politics and theology and ecology and finance and all, all sorts of other areas of life to talk about the major questions 
of life and particularly in religion and in well social importance and social questions of the day and it all happened of course in the shadow and still does of St George's Chapel as a place of daily prayer and worship so there was a reminder of eternal verities and it's been very striking to me whenever I've been at St George's house how people who never normally um, darken the doors of a church if they go to St George's house do end up at Coral Evensong in St George's Windsor and so somehow or another um, the rhythms of prayer and worship become part of whatever conference you're on and of course it was a place for clergy to have their well, mid-service refresher um, in the days when there was very little in-service training since we're going back to the mid-60s. The Crown has an episode in which the, the Duke sneers at this proposal, yet as far as I can tell, I mean others will know more about it than me, I, I thought he was fully behind it and it certainly wasn't, um, as far as I've ever learned, the result of any sort of crisis of faith, which is the way the Crown presents it, but part of his restless sort of inquiry into the meaning of things, and that was part of who he was. And it, it, neither was it tradition and modernity in collision, which it could feel as if it was a bit sometimes at St George's Windsor, because in a sense, you know, it's a place of unchanging um, traditions. Um, but I thought it was discernment and development of, uh, in, in the best way within tradition. And I think that's, that's what he represented. I mean, he didn't believe in overthrowing the past, but he believed in development and change, and he liked challenge. Um, and and I think he found in Robin Woods, you know, when he was still a relatively young man, somebody who was on his own wavelength, you know, who had military experience, had come out of the war, um, and yet shared some of the same sort of inquiring faith. So it's it's an extraordinary contribution to the history of the Church of England. And I think a lot was learned from the mid-service clergy courses there, which are now fairly common practice well beyond St George's House. Perhaps just finally, could I ask about um, many tributes to his um, example of service and many people saying, you know, he's putting the Queen first and I guess denying himself to some extent. I mean, do you, do you think that, was that motivated to some extent by his Christian faith? Um, I think it was motivated by, he may have been, I don't, I wouldn't like to say, it was motivated by a strong sense of duty. And I think um, for both of them, their Christian faith and a sense of duty went together. Um, uh, I, I mean, I suspect he would have made his mark on the world, whatever he did, because his force of personality was so strong. You know, this is a man, after all, who was mentioned in dispatches when he was still a teenager, you know, and was in charge of a ship when he was, what, 21 or two. And I think it took a person of strong character to do what he did, which was to give up a career, to give unswerving and support and love to the Queen. And particularly for a man whose own, if you like, I mean, I don't think anybody would ever call the Duke of Edinburgh a feminist, you know, so um, it was quite a sacrifice. And I think, I think there was an extraordinary example of duty in it uh, and sacrifice, but also um, some frustration. I mean, I think you could see that at times, and there was a sort of restlessness in him, which was part of his character and part of the very undefined role he found himself having when he was still a young man. And of course, he did carve out a, a role for himself. And uh, although the media saturation coverage has been criticised, one of the things that struck me was that you discovered from it 
things that with which he was involved that you didn't know he was involved in you know it was um so um broad really so i think yes it was duty yes it may have come from his christian faith but there was also frustration in it and we ought to be honest about that thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more the music for this podcast was provided by sought after sounds tune in next friday for the next episode Thank you.